0: So, uh, like I said, been going through this beloved psalm, Psalm 23. We talked a couple weeks ago about the background of this psalm. We were reintroduced to a psalm that many of us have already met before. Looking at the placement of this psalm as one of the poems within the Songbook of Israel, the Book of Psalms, which is made up of a bunch of these Hebrew poems. We looked at the the poet behind Psalm 23, which was who? David. 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 King David. David. Uh, the shepherd king of Israel, who himself was also a shepherd, writing this psalm about God being his shepherd from personal experience. He's had that role before. And we've been walking now kind of verse by verse through it. Last week, we looked at the first verse of this psalm that is the most important verse of this psalm because it's the foundation, not just for the rest of this psalm, but for a life that wants to experience all of the promises in this psalm. I don't know about you, but I would love in my life to experience the things here that we're reading. Anyone else? I'd love for for Psalm 23 to be more than just something that's, you know, um, recited and memorized. Um, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that Psalm 23 is written more on tombstones than it is engraved on lives, sadly. It's something that we see everywhere and we know, we're familiar with, we hear it at funerals. But, man, I want to experience still waters in life. Like, I want to experience in the midst of the chaos, there's a sense of peace, a sense of joy. In the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, there's this sense of I'm not afraid. There's this sense of expectation and excitement that no matter where I go, God's mercy and goodness is following me, and I'm looking forward to dwelling in his presence all the days of my life. Now, we all want that kind of life, but we can't have that kind of life. We can't be built into that kind of life unless this is our foundation. The Lord has to be our shepherd. And for David, that's what this opening line was. It was a foundational declaration that he made upon which now everything else is going to get built. As we come to Jesus as our good shepherd who's laid down his life for us and we become his sheep. That's a humble acknowledgement to say that too. We looked at that last week. We're saying, God, you're my shepherd, which makes me, you know what? I'm not the puma. I'm not the puma. I'm not the cougar, I'm not the cheetah, I am a sheep and you're my shepherd. And so that's the foundation here and it's on that foundation now that this morning I want to look at the first implication of this reality. If you're able to say this morning with confidence that God is your shepherd, you could say the Lord is my shepherd, what should follow should be the next verse which is, I shall not want. I shall not want that's what we want to focus on today this four word expression what it may lack in length and makes up for in the power of what this can mean for us what could it look like for us to live the kind of lives that say i shall not want or some translations read i don't lack anything so the title of my message this morning if you're taking notes is write this down it's the cause of contentment i want to talk about this idea today of the cause Of contentment. That's what we see here. This expression, I shall not want, is an expression of contentment. I'm good. It's like after a nice meal. Yesterday, I went to uh, the skate park with my brother-in-law and with Judah. It was the first time we took our five-year-old, like my my five-year-old. It would be weird if I said me and Roberto's five-year-old. But... um, um, me and Brittany's five year old Judo, we took him for the first time to Ramp 48 down in, in uh, Pompano, Fort Lauderdale, and uh, first time taking him to that skate park, and also first time for me being there in some time. I'm feeling it a little bit right now. Um, but on the way back, we were so hungry, and we ended up at um, the go to, who knows the go to sandwich spot in Boca? Anybody? No. There, hello. All God's people said amen. Okay. I love how, like, 20 people said that at once, too. Um, yeah, Las La is it's the go-to spot. It's, I know there's one in Pompano, too. So, you know, and I got the Monster. You got to go with the Monster. It's, it's completely unhealthy, and I wouldn't recommend going there more than once, probably a month. But um, when you do go there, it's the kind of meal that you are always going to be left satisfied. I've never eaten at Las La and afterwards gone, Let's go hit up five guys now, you know, I think a little round two might do, or a little dessert. They don't, I don't even think they have a dessert menu, it's because they know that once you eat our massively packed subs, you're going to be able to say, I shall not want, I'm good, I'm good, I'm full, I'm satisfied, I don't lack, but this expression is not just, listen, this expression is not just an exclamation of a one-time event. What David is talking about here as a sheep to God is he's talking about a kind of life that can always say this. I want a kind of life that I can always say, I'm good, God. I'm so full. I'm so satisfied. I shall not want. Contentment. Contentment. Let me ask you this question this morning, okay? When are you the most content I found that the best way to answer this question is to ask your spouse by the way they know this really well or a good friend but when are you the most content you know we all got a setting a scenario a situation whether it's a good movie a good meal good company maybe a combination of all of those things but we all got a scenario a setting a situation that it's kind of our sweet spot it's like yep I'm content this is good. This is where it's at for me. I know you want to know, but so for me, um, you probably don't, but I don't care. For me, um, this past Tuesday was like my content day. It's, uh, it's one of my days off. Monday and Tuesday is the day I try to take off to be with the Lord, be with the family, have some Sabbath. And Tuesday, we made the decision after Judah was uh, done with school, he does a half day of pre-K, and we headed down to Red Reef, actually. We went down to the beach there um, at about 2 p.m., worst decision of our day, um, as uh, we were trying to get across the sand uh, with our feet still intact. It was so hot. We ended up, you know, trying out the beach. We brought Penny for the first time to the beach. She's five months old. And um, listen, we've all had good beach days. And we've all had not so good beach days. Like, this is one of those days where it's like, if you saw us, you were like, that family is from out of town. They are struggling here at the beach. (laughs) They don't know what they're doing like, you should have seen me as Brittany took the family back to the car just dragging the beach wagon and just trying to wave at the lifeguard like, will you help me, you know? Um, anyway, you're like, contentment, cool. That's, uh, no, it wasn't that. It wasn't that. Um, now, I don't know about you, but for me, one of like the most rewarding things in life is going in the pool after the beach. I don't know what it is. It's the little things, right? There's something about jumping in a cold swimming pool. It's because it's the beach with no sand, right? And chlorine. But um, we got home and it was, listen, it was one of those, I just got to say, it was one of those afternoons. I had one on Tuesday. We have our bad days. Man, God gave me a good day on Tuesday. I just got to brag. I just got to say, thanks, God. Hey, I had a good day. We're allowed to say that, right? I had a good day today. It was one of those days. I um, got home and man, first of all, Penny went to sleep. At, like in the afternoon. Moms with babies, dads with babies, a couple of you I know are here, you know how much that means. That right in and of itself, you're like, I'm content. I don't care what I'm doing. That's good. So the baby goes to sleep. We're in the pool, and, you know, as a guy and as a homeowner, there's something about, like, having a clean pool, you know? It's like, it's like a, it's a notch on your belt. It's a badge on your sleeve. It's like, that pool service? <laughs> you're looking at them, right? Like, There's something about that, and so, man, I walk, and for me, I get, my pool turns the most beautiful color blue once a month. It's like, but that day, it was that day, all right, it went, before that, it looked like a swamp, but but that day, we walked in, it was like grease, and it was so, so we get in the pool, and first of all, Judah and Evie are playing together in the pool without killing each other. It was amazing. It was like, let's take pictures. Um, they were hanging out, loving each other. And then my wife, Brittany, who is always kind of going, it was so good to see her, she, started, she laid down on a pool raft. And guys, you know, that's like when you're most content when your wife is good, right? Like, you can't be content if your wife is freaking out. And so, and then, so there we were, it was just a, sorry, it was a moment. As you can tell, it meant a lot to me. Um <laughs> That was my, cont- I remember sitting there, laying there in the pool, and it was just like one of those days in, the, in beautiful, you know, South Florida, where I just thought to myself, I shall not want right now. I thought to myself, I could just go to heaven right from here. Now, here's what's interesting. Here in Psalm 23, as David is describing the Lord as his shepherd, as David is describing this declaration of being content, um, Many scholars would submit it's very likely that David is not penning this from the deep end of a pool. He is most likely writing this from the perspective, at least, of the dark depths of a cave. Actually, verse 4 tells us it's from the perspective of the valley of the shadow of death. It's interesting, right? It's like David is talking about a kind of contentment that's not contingent upon circumstances. I mean, he's, he's had a hard life. I mean, it's interesting, too. It's like you read, I think the NIV says, I shall not lack. You look at David's life, and you're like, yeah, bro, you lack some stuff. How can you say that? It was as if David's contentment went deeper than his circumstances. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this kind of contentment in Philippians chapter 4. Have you seen this? Paul is first thanking the Philippian church for being a blessing to him. When they had the opportunity, they showed up, and they were able to bless his ministry and sow into his life. So he's thanking them for that. But then he says, it's not that I speak. Thanks for your gifts. But he goes, I don't speak in regards to need, for I have, look at this, learned in whatever state I am, whether I'm at the hot beach wrestling my kids out of the sand or I'm in the deep end of a swimming pool. Check us out. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. This is so cool. Look at this. It's like a life skill. He goes, I know how. I know how to do something. I know how to be a base, to be at the lowest point. And I know how to abound, to be at the highest point, good days and bad days. Everywhere and in all things, anywhere I go, in whatever I'm going through, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. And here's everyone's favorite verse that they never ever read the context of. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is a new kind of contentment. This is the kind of contentment that David is talking about. It's a contentment that is learned. It's learned, and as it's learned, it's learned not so much in the state of your circumstances, but you see the way Paul was talking about it? It's more of a state of mind. It's a state of being. It's a contentment that's not dependent on what's going on around you. We talked about the title of this message, which was the cause of contentment. What is the cause for a guy like David, who's gone through a lot of stuff, who's lacked a lot in his life, what could cause someone like that, what could cause someone like you and me to be able to say, I shall not want? The answer is the first verse. It's the first half there. The Lord is my shepherd. See, that's the cause here. Remember, David is speaking from the perspective of a shepherd. David knows what it's like to have content sheep, and he also knows what it's like to see discontent sheep. As a shepherd, David knew that the shepherd's attention equates to the sheep's contentment. That's how it works in shepherding. The shepherd's attention and care and focus, who your shepherd is, will always determine the condition of your contentment. In fact, I told you we've been reading through this book, and I've been, well, i I say we because I'm preaching from it. Um, You you don't even have to read it and you'll have read through it by the end of this series, I promise you. Um, But uh, here in, uh, it's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Philip Keller, who is a pastor, who himself, um, sorry, here it is, Um, who himself was a shepherd uh, by trade. Uh, He writes from the perspective of a shepherd, especially as it pertains to Psalm 23. Listen to what he says okay he describes a sheep under his neighbor's care he says this okay he says when all is now that was just I'm sorry for those words that weren't making sentences I was trying to find the page okay we, we should be back to human function right now okay here we go all right verse 28 says or chapter 28 says when all is said and done the welfare of any flock is entirely dependent upon the manager afforded to them by their owner He said, the tenant sheepman on the farm next to my first ranch was the most indifferent manager I had ever met. He was not concerned about the condition of his sheep. His land was neglected. He gave little or no time to his flock, letting them pretty well forage for themselves as best as they could, both summer and winter. They fell prey to dogs, cougars, rustlers. Every year, these poor creatures were forced to gnaw away at the bare brown fields and impoverished pastures. Every winter, there was a shortage of nourishing hay and wholesome grain to feed the hungry. How do you say this word? E-W-E-S. Ooze. I think of that song. Ooze. Okay. Um, just kidding. I don't do that. I'm a pastor. Shelter, look at it. It says a shelter to safeguard and protect the suffering, the suffering sheep from storms and blizzards was scanty and inadequate. It's a cool word. It says they had only polluted, notice this, only polluted muddy water to drink. There had been a lack of salt and other trace minerals needed to offset their sickly pastures. In their thin, weak, and diseased condition, these poor sheep were a pathetic sight. He kind of goes right for the jugular there. In my mind's eye, listen to this, I can still see them standing at the fence, huddled sadly in little knots, staring wistfully through the wires at the rich pastures on the other side. To all their distress, the heartless, selfish owner seemed utterly callous and indifferent. He simply did not care. What if his sheep did want green grass, fresh water, shade, safety, or shelter from the storm? What if they did want relief from wounds and bruises and disease and parasites? He ignored their needs. He couldn't care less. Why should he? They were just sheep fit only for a slaughterhouse. A sheep's contentment. Fully contingent on the result. It's the result of their shepherd's care. I wonder how many of us can sometimes feel like these sheep, though. Maybe you're like, I feel like in life I'm looking through a fence at greener grass. Wondering, God, where are you and do you care about me? Can you turn to John chapter 10 with me? John chapter 10. Uh, We said that we're going to be in this chapter kind of along the way as we've been going through Psalm 23. This is where we see Jesus as the the good shepherd revealed here in Psalm 23. But there's one thing that Jesus wants to make sure about himself here in John 10. Okay, Um, He wants us to know that he's a good shepherd. Okay, Now, we we look to at Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. It speaks of Yahweh. Yahweh comes from this idea of God, his self-proclaimed name, which is I am who I am. I am that I will be. That's who God reveals himself to Moses. If you want to know what God's name is, you can join our next book club because we read about it actually this summer in a book called God Has a Name. But that's how God reveals himself. Um, We speak of it in in the second person, which is Yahweh. He is who he is. And Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he takes that statement of who God is and he Further unveils God's character revealed in himself. And so you have in the book of John the seven I am statements, right? Have you seen these? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I'm the bread of life. The I am am in, in flesh. That's who Jesus was. And then here we see the God of Psalm 23 revealed in Jesus. The Lord who is David's shepherd right here in John 10. Notice what Jesus says in verse 11. I am John 10 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, look at this, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees, I love this, because he is a hireling. <laughs> Why does the hireling flee? Because he's a hireling. What makes him a hireling? What's the characteristic? He does not care about the sheep. But Jesus says, contrasting to the hireling, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And there's other sheep, which are not of this fold. One day they'll be in a church called Solus. And them also I must bring him. and they're going to hear my voice, and they're going to be one flock and one shepherd of who? The good shepherd. With this primary characteristic as he's contrasting, well, a shepherd and a hireling. See, a hireling was just a hired servant, kind of like a babysitter for sheep, a sheep sitter. Throw you a few bucks, you could take care of the sheep, watch after them. But here's what happens I'm not gonna die for your kids, okay? And so when the wolf comes, the hireling, well, there's no ownership. There's no personal possession or passion of these sheep. So when the wolf comes, the hireling flees. Because the hireling is not there to give his life for the sheep. The hireling is not there to serve the sheep. But Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I take ownership over those that are my own. And I will lay down my life to care for them. That's Jesus. Jesus. That's who leads us to say the same thing as David, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see, Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And so last week we talked about this question of whether or not you're his, right? Do you belong to him and are you sure? And now that we can solidify that, knowing that we get that standing through Jesus himself, calling us out of our sin into a relationship with him, turning from our sin, trusting in the cross to save us from that sin, we come to Jesus, and as we come to Jesus, we're coming to a good shepherd who sees us as his prized possession, who who takes upon himself the responsibility to care for your and my lives. And it's that understanding that leads us to contentment. So we asked earlier this question about um, our shepherd's care, but now let's look at our lives and let's ask this if Jesus is the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep if I belong to him and he cares for me does my life testify of his care just look at your life for a second and ask yourself if people were to look at my life at kind of the full body of how I'm living how I'm speaking how I'm thinking does it reflect a sheep who's under Jesus' care is there contentment through his care There's a few ways to evaluate this. Um, You can look at the people closest to you. Of course, you can ask them. But I think there's some key components of this. So write a few of these things down. I think the big question we want to ask here is, how has Jesus and how does Jesus care for us? If we want to be able to answer this, we should ask that. How does Jesus care for us as his sheep and lead us to be content? Write this first one down. The first way that Jesus cares for us is he satisfies our hearts. Let's start here. The reason why we, as those that belong to Christ, can say the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want is because I don't just have a God who gives me the things that I need, but he's given me what I've ultimately needed all along, which is himself. He satisfies our hearts. Um, This comes from the foundational idea that, well, every human heart, every human being, is longing for satisfaction. Every last one of us is looking to be filled looking to be satisfied, and not just in a temporary way, not just with, with gratification. We're not, we're not just looking to be gratified, we're looking to be satisfied. Not, not just looking to be, okay, that, that, that felt good, or that was right, but we're looking for a sense of purpose and meaning, a sense of, this is why I'm here. Uh, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity in every heart. There, there's this eternal void that we're all looking to be filled, and the position of of the gospel and, and our understanding of life is that that's not always has how it was, right? When God created this world, there wasn't this longing for more. When God created Adam and Eve and set things in order and set things right, there wasn't like this, man, why am I here? There wasn't like this, man, my wife is so disappointing me because I have some needs and I'm, I'm just struggling and she's, she's not being who I need her to be. And No, there was this harmony of relationship with God, this sense of fullness, that we've turned away from. That's most of what sin is, really. Sin is looking to other things to give us what we're ultimately looking for. In fact, there's this interaction that Jesus has with this woman in John chapter four. Have you read about this? The woman at the well. Jesus shows up to the Samaritan woman who surprises her just by talking to her because he's a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman. Jesus constantly breaking down those cultural barriers that we like to set up. As he's speaking to her, she's going, how? You're talking to me, and and here's what Jesus said. He asked her for a drink uh, as she's at this well. Can you get me a drink? She goes, not only are you asking me to get you a drink, but you're speaking to me. And Jesus says to her, well, here's the deal. If you knew who I was, if you understood who I was, you would be asking me for a drink, right? You you would be saying, can can I get something from you, Jesus? And Jesus says, that's the invitation in a sense. And the woman says, what, are you greater than our fathers, This is Jacob's well. And Jesus says, he goes, here's the deal, okay? This well of water, when you drink it, uses a great analogy, um, it'll quench your thirst. Something like a cup of cold water, okay, on a hot day. But eventually you're going to be thirsty again. Whatever it is right now in your life that you're going to, that you're looking to, that's kind of a functional savior for you, it will do the trick for a moment. On the other end of whatever it is you're looking to satisfy you will be another thirst, a thirst for more, a, a thirst for a better or a greater experience, for more satisfaction. But Jesus says, But he who drinks of the water that I give him, he calls it living water, will experience this fountain in his life that springs up into eternal life. It's this joy, it's this fulfillment from here and onto eternity. And then Jesus says to this woman this inside, he goes, go call your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, I know. He says, you've had five husbands. And the one you're with now, he's not your husband. Now, this is actually, when you read the story, this is actually the conversation, which is kind of funny. Like Out of all the great analogies, water, living water, when he's like, you ain't got a husband. Like, that's the thing that when you read the story, it leads her to go, you're the Messiah. Actually, when you read about it, she comes to him. What was Jesus speaking about? Well, Jesus was speaking to this woman and saying, listen, you've been looking to relationships to satisfy you. You've been through five marriages, and each marriage has failed because you are putting a weight on that person that they're not meant to bear. You are looking for them to give you what only God can. That will crush a relationship. Some of our marriages are struggling because of that very reason, because we look at our spouses as functional saviors you got to give me my joy. you got to give me my peace. So your behavior or your respect or whatever it is, that's the thing that actually gives me a sense of meaning and purpose. But that's a glass of water that will make you thirsty again one day. So here's what God does. This is what's amazing about God. God gives us all what we ultimately need to be satisfied. And listen, it's none other than himself. It's him. That's what we're ultimately longing for. That's what Jesus shared with this woman. It's Psalm 73. I love this scripture. It says this Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth greater than you. This is a great place to, this is a content life. When you're able to say this, that God, to have you is to have everything. God, I can have nothing, but to have you, I have everything. On the other hand, I could have everything, but to not have you, I have nothing. But to have you, I have what I'm ultimately looking for. I have this deep sense of satisfaction. Now, I want you to know today that this is who God is, and this is what he wants to do in your life. Psalm 145, verse 16 says this. I love this scripture. It says, the eyes of all look expectantly to you. I love that. you. You, you. Open your hand, check this out, and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is awesome. Some of you don't understand the God of the Bible to be like this. Some of you see God not with an open, generous, outstretched hand, but you see him more with like a closed fist, kind of pounding on the table as a judge, waiting for you to get your life together. Or or maybe you see him as kind of like somebody that has stuff for you, but he's like, only if you behave. I do that with my kids all the time, I'm not gonna lie, okay? Yeah, you can have, right? It's kind of like behavior-based blessing. Here's God. The God who made you for himself opens up his hand to you. And his desire is to satisfy your desire. His desire is to stretch out in relationship with you so much so that this God stretched out his hand on a cross. That was the extent that he went to get, to get into your life, to reveal himself to you, to satisfy the desire of every living thing. And so this is why God is so good. God, God is so good that he'll even let us go through all the options of what this world has to offer. Right now you're like in life, you're like, man, I've just been hitting my head. I, it's like no matter where I go, I, it's like, God, where are you? Where are you? And God says, I'm right here. He'll allow us to sometimes go from option to option to option to realize there's nothing that can do for me what only God can. So I'm going to come to his open hand. I'm going to say, Lord, I'm done looking to other things to give me what only you can, and I experience his satisfaction. Now, as we go back to this verse, did you notice what it said? I love this. When you experience that sense of God, he's the treasure, right? It's been said, you know, we don't go to God to get heaven, we go to heaven to get God. He's the treasure. So when we see that, when we understand that it's it's to have a relationship with God that's the ultimate prize, it says this what happens is not only is God the source of your satisfaction, but he also becomes the source of your strength in life. He becomes the strength of your heart and your portion forever. And this brings us back, doesn't this, to the first verse we read in Philippians? As we go back to this idea of contentment, right? Man, probably the top go to what's your favorite verse. Okay, Because we know, like most of us, we know John 3.16 is kind of used too much. So we're like, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Come on, Tolopoido and Christo came fortalese. All right, I learned that for a missions trip. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strength. Uh, Steph Curry, doesn't he have, this is like his thing, right? Okay, so this is like a, we look at that verse, I can do all things, and it's like a winning verse, right? It's like a beat LeBron verse. I can do all things through Christ. And that's how we look at that. We're like, man, I got a test coming up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm about, to, I'm about to go skateboarding at a skate park at 30 years old, and I shouldn't. I can do all things through Christ oh, who strengthens me. Okay, um, Thanks, Liz. That was my sister that just laughed. I know her laugh. Um, the context here about Philippians 4.13, this is not a winning verse. Do we know this? This is a verse that says this. Because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and I know there's nothing else that can give me what only he can, it doesn't matter what I have in life. My lot in life does not determine my strength. It's not how much I have or how little I have. It's not whether or not I'm suffering or in a good place. My strength is not derived from my circumstance. My contents don't make up my contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Christ is the source of my strength. That's another great way to ask that question about what are you looking to to satisfy you. You could also ask, in your life, what is the source of your strength? Like, what's the thing in your life that if God were to say, hey, I want, I want to take this out of your life, your strength would just kind of be lost along with that thing. It's very possible that that is the thing that you're actually worshiping, the source of our strength. God also, I love this, he not only satisfies our hearts, write this also down, God also supplies our needs as our good shepherd. This is how he cares for us. This is how he makes us content. He satisfies our hearts. There's a contentment there. Doesn't matter what I'm going through, I'm satisfied through my shepherd. But he also is a good shepherd who cares for his sheep and supplies our needs. In that same passage there in Philippians 4, Paul goes on to say that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches by Christ Jesus. This is who God is also revealed to be in the Bible. He's a God that supplies. He satisfies, but he's also a God who cares for his creation. I mean, just in a basic sense. God created this world as a provisionary God. He's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He's good. So so he gives us oxygen. He gives us friendships. He's a God of blessing. He didn't have to, but he does. This is who he is. It says that in 1 Timothy, actually, chapter 6, that God gives life to all men. At the end of the day, every, the reason why all breath let all breath praise the Lord is because all breath is there because God has given it, right? So God is gracious. He's a giver. He gives good gifts. He supplies all of our needs. Um, Paul takes this a step further for a believer. Okay, so if you're a Christian, here's what he says in Romans 8. He says, God did not spare his own son. But he gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So here's how Paul takes this idea about God being a shepherd who cares for us. Not only does God take care of your material needs, he's, he's good. He gives you oxygen to breathe, okay? He, he, gives you, he gives you eyesight to see. He gives you a mind to work with at work. But God has provided for our greatest need. What we most deeply needed was a Savior. We need God himself who would come and die on the cross for our sins, this is hard for us, right? Because a lot of us, what we think we need is we need to keep some rules, right? We need God to give us that. God, give me, some, give me some rules to keep. Give me some things to do so that you can love me. And God, instead of giving us a law, the Bible says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God came near to us, and he gave us his son. God, provide, God has already, prov- listen to this, in your life, there is not going to be a greater need that you will face than the need for your sins to be forgiven. God has already provided for that. At some point, you look back and you go, God, if you've been faithful in the past, who am I to doubt you in the future? You've provided for my forgiveness. How much more are you going to give me everything else I need? This is who you are. You're a God who cares. You're a shepherd that cares for his sheep. You're not a neglecting hireling that flees, but you're near. And so Jesus talks about this idea. Turn to Matthew 6. Turn with me. Matthew 6. Still with me? That's depressing. Matthew 6. Matthew 6. <laughs> Matthew 6. Turn there. Matthew 6, Jesus talks about this big idea when he talks about how God is a shepherd who supplies our needs. In Luke's version, he says that we shouldn't fear. He tells us the little flock that shouldn't fear. Matthew 6, look at verse 25. In light of God being a shepherd who provides for us, he says, therefore, I, I say to you, Matthew six twenty-five. Jesus speaking, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body, more than clothing? In another passage, Jesus says, uh, your life does not consist of the things that you possess. I love that. You are more than your bank account or the lack in your bank account. You are more than, life is more than food and clothing. It's more than material things. But notice, yet still, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns. They don't, they don't do hard work. Yet God, your heavenly Father, feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Does he not care about you? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? That's like a verse for a middle schooler, I think. Okay, But verse 28. So why do you worry about your clothing? Look at this. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God, look at this, so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat And what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek, for all these things, the the Gentiles, excuse me, for your heavenly Father knows, this is huge, your heavenly Father knows, he knows, he knows that you need all these things. He knows. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow you got things to worry about. Wait, wait till tomorrow to worry about it. He says, for, tomor- for tomorrow we will worry about its own things. It's got its own issues. Don't waste your worry on tomorrow. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Where are you at today? Don't, don't, don't be so stressed out about what's coming tomorrow, two days, three weeks from now. He says, be here in the moment. And in the moment, whatever your needs are, right now, whatever it is, we all have needs. I know right now, every last one of us can raise our hand and say, this is something I'm praying for God to do in my life. Praying for him to provide, praying for him to heal. Praying for him to to save. Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry about it. Don't don't have anxiety over it. Anxiety, you gotta understand this, that's the antithesis of contentment. Anxiety and contentment can't coexist within the same heart, they can't. You can't be content with some anxiety. I'm worrying, but I got a little contentment crammed in there somewhere. It's one or the other. You put off one to put on the other. You put off this worry and anxiety and you put on this sense of contentment because your father cares about you. It's what you look to. And just like he cares for the birds and the flowers, you're more valuable to him than they are. And the the clincher here is this awesome promise Jesus makes that he knows the things that we need. The father knows what we need. And what's cool about that is first and foremost, it assures us that God is aware of what we're going through. Like guys, God knows what you need. He knew of your need before you did. He knows; he's acquainted with your needs. He's aware of your needs. So this should make you encouraged to know that God's there. He's aware. He's present. Not only that, but here is what's also good about this: God knows what we need. Sometimes we think we know what we need, right? So we go to God with what we know we need. Hey, God, I wasn't sure if you are aware of this, but I need these things. He's like, okay, fill me in. What's the what's the four one one? God, I need a house. I need a house, God. I need a new car. My car's three years old now, and it's just time to update. God, new iPhones are out, new iPhones are out. Those things are nice, they're colorful. And God says, I know what you need. You know, that that's that's the job of a shepherd. It's you are not responsible to worry about your needs. That's not your job. That's not my job. Imagine if your kids did that to you, right? Imagine if Judah this week was like, Dad, I'm really scared. I'm like, what's wrong, bud? She's like, I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. <laughs> right? What am I, I going to eat? I'd be like, I can take care of that for you, bud. I was, you know, I've thought of that, you know? Because I, I care about you. I take ownership of you. Same is true with God. He knows what we need. It was never our responsibility. So what do we do? We don't worry. That's the negative. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't waste your life worrying. Worrying about things statistically that I think it's like 87% of the things that we worry about are, uh, they're not even connected to reality and scenarios and they're things that never end up happening. Like, statistically, most of what we worry about is imaginary. So Jesus is like, don't do it. <laughs> First of all, it's not going to make you any taller. And in the Greek, some have translated that, the expression there was saying, your life is not going to get any longer. It's not like, well, if I worry enough about this problem, maybe it'll work out. Working out through worrying. Here we go. She's like, no. In fact, statistics also show, science shows that when you worry, it's bad for your health and you take away from your life. So he's saying, don't, don't, don't waste your worry. That's not your responsibility to worry about your needs. That's God's. He cares for you. But here's the positive. I like the way Peter says it. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Like, this is a big verse, I think, for Brittany and I, too, um, Brittany too, as we stepped out in faith to to plant Soulless Church, um, God took me here and he showed me that when I worry, I'm being really prideful. Because I'm assuming that I'm God. And that I, God, I gotta care about my needs for you. So what's the, notice this. How do we not worry? Well, here's the action. Cast your care on him. Cast your care. That's Peter writing this. He's a fisherman. right? Cast it. Send it to him. Send it away from you. Whatever you're carrying, there's two options here with your cares. You either carry them or you cast them. You can carry it or you could cast it on the one who is able to hold it. You were never meant to carry that. You were never meant to carry that care. That care was meant to be cast upon Jesus. And as you do so, what you're actually doing is humbling yourself. You're saying, what am I doing? I'm not God. You're God. I'm not going to carry what you're supposed to carry. Here's my care. You're my shepherd. It's in your presence that I shall not want because you care for me. It's a good shepherd. Psalm 55:22. I love this. It says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. God wants to sustain, but if we want his work to sustain us in the midst of our challenges, we've got to cast first. God wants to give you his power, but it comes when you admit your weakness. God, I need you. I need you. And then lastly, write this last one down. He sanctifies our wants. We'll close here, okay? So this is our good shepherd. He leads us to be content by caring for us. How does he care for us? He satisfies our hearts so that no matter what we have or don't have, we know that we ultimately have what we ultimately need, and that's him. Satisfies us. We can do all things through that as he gives us strength. He also supplies our every need. He's a good, good father, and he cares for his children. He knows what we need more than we do. And then lastly, he also sanctifies our ones. I love this expression, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. See, coming from a place of contentment, one of the things that God works on, he definitely works on what you have, and he works on what you need. But a lot of us know this, too. When we become believers, when God changes our lives, Something changes in regards to to what we want. Our wants are different. In fact, here's the way that Ezekiel says it. I get into the book of Ezekiel sometimes, you know. Ezekiel says in verse uh, 26 of chapter 36 he says, God makes this promise rather I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, I will take your heart of stone of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So this, this is what true transformation, when God impacts your life, it's not that you become this person that all of a sudden obeys all the rules. No, you are still your broken, messed up self. Come on, welcome to the club. That's us. We're desperately in need of the same grace that God met us on our first day. On the last day, I'm still in need of God's grace and love and forgiveness. Here's becoming a, here's the work, I wanna say rather, that God does in our lives. He takes our stony, hard, stubborn, Hearts that want to reject him in his glory, and he transforms our hearts to be soft. And listen, with a new heart also comes new desires. You start to want the things you used to want. It's like you don't want it as much anymore. You don't need it either because you learn to know the difference between your wants and your needs. You go, I used to want, I used to have to have this, but now I'm content. This is weird. I don't want what I used to want. And now it's like I want new things. Now I have new hungers and new desires. And it used to be in my job, I wanted to be the one in control who made everybody get it done. Now as I study Jesus, it's like I want to serve people. It used to be that I had to run to every sexual outlet that was before me because I had to live and YOLO and get some experience in my life and and tell a few stories. But now all I want is to be committed to someone and love them and serve them the way Jesus is to me. He changes our hearts. He sanctifies our hearts. The word sanctify, that's a classic church word, okay? Get some sanctification up in here, okay? Sanctification is this idea of God making us holy. God redeeming us and rewiring us and reworking us, taking us back to his initial intention as we've become unholy, we've become broken. But he sanctifies us by giving us a new heart to want new things. And not just, listen, he doesn't just He doesn't just give us a new heart to want new things. It's not just about what you want. Sometimes the sanctification that God does in our hearts is he teaches us how to want new things. Big difference there. Sometimes, listen, you can want the right thing the wrong way at the wrong time. So how is he sanctifying in your heart to say, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. Contentment, contentment. Um, The heart and the hope is that we can all not just study a verse like this, the Lord is my shepherd, but that we could say, like David, God, because you're my shepherd, that's also to say, I'm good. You've satisfied my deepest needs. You're faithful to provide for my every need. And you, you change my heart, God, to trust that you know what I need more than what I want. Amen?